Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a talk by Russell Banks from 1999. Banks is the author of over 20 books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. He first came to national attention with the novels The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, both of which were made into feature films in the late 1990s. In this talk, Banks talks about the uneasy and sometimes downright hostile history between authors and Hollywood with some hilarious anecdotes. And while this tension continues today, there's also another fascinating contemporary resonance in his talk. At the time, the digital transition in filmmaking was dramatically lowering the cost of production, allowing serious films to be made from literary fiction and nonfiction. A blossoming of these so-called indie films resulted in the late 90s and the aughts. Today, another revolution has taken hold, streaming. And it too has brought us another wave of incredible novelistic narratives on the screen, but this time on what we have traditionally called TV. Banks dives into what he learned in Hollywood and what that meant to him as a writer. And more broadly, what film has borrowed from literature and vice versa, describing the enduring impact on both art forms. He also describes the limits of both forms and the trade-offs needed in the process of translating from one to the other. So here's Banks with a kind of masterclass on the history of literature and film adaptation on Literary Arts, the Archive Project. For many years, or maybe not so many years, for some years anyhow, I'd be out on the book tour hustings. And after a reading, would be signing books at a table um, in a lobby, and a lovely thing would happen. A stranger, a total stranger, would appear in line and volunteer that he or she loved one of my books, one other than the book that I was at that moment signing, of course, and was now embellishing with endearments and fawning declarations of lifelong gratitude. But there is, of course, nothing more satisfying to an author of serious literary fiction or poetry, which is to say an author who does not write for money, <laughs> than to be told by a stranger that one's work has entered that stranger's life. And whenever a person told me that he or she had enjoyed affliction, say, or the sweet hereafter, I assumed the reference was to my book, and I might say in a surprised way, for it was, after all, to me, still somewhat surprising. Oh, you read the book. As if the reference were possibly to another affliction, like cholera or extreme poverty. Or to a different sweet hereafter, a designer drug, maybe. Or a chic new soul food restaurant in Manhattan. Inviting, I suppose, what usually followed, which was a description of the circumstances or conditions under which the book was read. A book club... My brother-in-law gave it to me for Christmas, a college course. I read it in prison, which actually often happens, in the hospital, on a train or a plane or a slow boat to China. It's what we talk about when we talk about a book that one of us has written and the other has read. We're inevitably somewhat self-conscious, at a loss for the appropriate words, in a bit of a blush, both of us. Writing and reading literary fiction and poetry are activities almost too intimate to talk about. Literature is intimate behavior between strangers, possibly more intimate even than sex, and it occurs between extreme strangers who sometimes do not even speak the same languages and thus require the services of a translator. And sometimes one of the strangers, the writer usually, has been dead for centuries. Sometimes he or she is utterly unknown, anonymous, or someone like Homer or the author of the Upanishads or the Song of Solomon whose individual identity has been mythologized and absorbed by an entire people. My point is simply 
that this activity of writing involves at its center the desire on the part of the writer to become intimate with strangers, to speak from one's secret, most vulnerable, truth-telling self directly to a stranger's same self. And it's so central to this impulse that it actually does not work when one's readers are not strangers, when one's readers are one's friends or lovers or family members. It's well known, after all, that no writer takes pleasure from the praise of his mom or kid sister. And we're all conditioned from our apprenticeship on not to take seriously the critiques offered by our husbands and wives and best friends. Either way, people who know us personally have motives and knowledge that disqualify them as readers. No, it's only the kindness of strangers that counts. That shyly offered gift, I have read your novel. With the clear implication, of course, that it was not an unhappy or unrewarding experience. I know this because I am a reader too. I am other writers' intimate stranger, and I have sat next to an author at dinner and have felt that same odd, embarrassing need to declare as if revealing a slightly illicit or inappropriate interest in baseball cards or negligee mail-order catalogs that I have read his or her novel, and I know that in saying so, I am confessing that I have traveled out of body deeply into that stranger's fictional world and have resided there, dreamed there, hallucinated there, and have been moved, comforted, frightened, and have laughed aloud there and maybe even wept. The author, I can always tell, is slightly embarrassed by my confession, but pleased nonetheless, the more so inasmuch as he or she and I have never met before and never will again and he or she has never read anything of mine, and if the author wishes to preserve our beautiful relationship as it is, never will either. Reader and writer from two different solar systems, our orbits intersect for a second and we reflect back the flash of each other's light, take brief comfort from the actual physical existence of the other, and then speed on safely back in our own imagined universe as if the other were not circling far away in another universe around a different, possibly brighter sun than ours. In the last few years, however, there has been a subtle but important change for me in this exchange between writer and presumed reader. Nowadays, when I'm at the book signing table, I'm often approached by a person carrying a copy of Affliction, for example, the paperback with a picture of Nick Nolte and James Coburn on the cover, or maybe the Canadian edition of The Sweet Hereafter with Ian Holm and Sarah Pauly staring mournfully out, and the person will say, I loved affliction. Or The Sweet Hereafter meant a lot to me, and pleased and slightly embarrassed as usual, I will say, oh, you read the book. And the person will look at me somewhat quizzically and say, uh, no, but I saw the movie. <laughs> and this is my subject. And I'm here tonight to say I honestly don't know how that makes me feel. <laughs> how I ought to feel, what I ought to say in response. What do we talk about when we talk about a book I wrote whose movie version you saw? <laughs> or a book I wrote that you know of solely because you heard about the movie and saw the clips on the Academy Awards television show? What is the relationship generally, though, between literary fiction, that relatively esoteric art form, and film, the most pop popular and powerful art form of our time, and in particular between my literary fictions and their film adaptations? These are not simple questions, and literary writers have historically been reluctant to discuss them except in dismissive ways. Hemingway famously advised novelists to drive, presumably from the east, to the California-Nevada state line and toss the novel over the line and let the movie people toss the money back and then turn around and drive away as <laughs> fast as possible. Which is what most novelists have done and is what most producers, directors, screenwriters, and actors have wanted them to do. 
Let us buy your plot, they say, your characters, setting, themes, and language, and do whatever we please with them. That's what the money's for, Mr. Shakespeare, so we can leave dear old Lear happily ensconced in the linger longer assisted living facility in Naples, Florida, <laughs> with his three daughters, Melanie, Gwyneth, and Julia, living together in adjoining condos nearby. Heavily in the Gulf Coast real estate subdivision, romance on the horizon, fade out and hit the credits soundtrack, staying alive by the Bee Gees. Let's get Newman for the old guy, and for his pal, what's his name, the guy with glaucoma, we'll get Jack. We'll keep the title, sort of, only we'll call it Shakespeare in Retirement. <laughs> Anyhow. Writers who didn't or couldn't afford to take Hemingway's advice almost always paid for it dearly with their pride, their integrity, and often with their reputations and sometimes even their whole careers. The story is that Hollywood is like Las Vegas. If you have a weakness, they'll find it. Everyone knows Fitzgerald's sad tale of depression, booze, and crack-up. And there are dozens more. Faulkner seems to have managed only by staying solidly drunk from arrival to departure. Nelson Algren sold the film rights of The Man with the Golden Arm to Otto Preminger, contingent on Algren's being hired to write the screenplay. Later, safely back in Chicago, he said, I went out there for a thousand a week and I worked Monday and I got fired Wednesday. The guy that hired me was out of town on Tuesday. S.J. Perlman said of Hollywood, it was a hideous and untenable place when I dwelt there, populated with few exceptions by yahoos, and now that it has become the chief citadel of television, it's unspeakable. A native of Providence, Rhode Island, and a great writer about boxing and horse racing, you'd not, have, you'd not think of Perlman as especially fastidious, but Hollywood he saw as a dreary industrial town controlled by hoodlums of enormous wealth, the ethical sense of a pack of jackals and tastes so degraded that it befouled everything it touched. Which is sort of the way I see Providence, actually. <laughs> More or less in the same vein, John Cheever said, my principal feeling about Hollywood is suicide. If I could get out of bed and into the shower, I was all right. Since I never paid the bills, I'd reach for the phone and order the most elaborate breakfast I could think of, and then I'd try to make it to the shower before I hanged myself. These are strong statements, but, <laughs> but not at all atypical when serious literary writers found themselves obliged to work in, for, and with the makers of movies. Ben Hecht put it in depressingly simple terms. I'm a Hollywood writer, so I put on a sports jacket and take off my brain. <laughs> and yet, and yet, and yet, one is forced to ask, was that then and this now? And how do we account for the difference? Because when one looks around today, one notices an awful lot of very respectable fiction writers having what appears to be a very good time in bed with Hollywood, both as authors of novels recently adapted to film, like Michael Andachi's The English Patient, or Toni Morrison's Beloved, or Peter Carey's Oscar and Lucinda, David Gooderson's Snow Falling on Cedars, and Mona Simpson's Anywhere But Here. And as fiction writers turn screenwriters like Richard Price and John Irving, Amy Tan, Jim Harrison, and Susan Meinhardt. Paul Oster has even directed his first film and is planning to try a second. And there are others waiting in the wings. And we're not even talking, we're not talking at all about the Crichtons and the Clancy's here, whose fiction seems written mainly to fit the template of blockbuster movies a respectable line of work, but not one I myself identify with. Now, we're talking about writers whose fiction aspires to the somewhat more Parnassian heights where literature resides, work composed without consideration of financial reward and meant to be compared, for better or worse, to the great literary works of the past. And there is a growing phalanx of such writers whose often difficult, morally ambiguous novels 
complexly layered books with unruly characters have been eagerly sought out and adapted for film. I honestly can't remember a period like it. We could easily make a very long list of novelists and story writers, serious literary writers, almost none of whom actually lives and works in Hollywood as it happens, thanks to fax machine, modem, and email, but all of whom are making a fairly good living from the film industry these days, a much better living, certainly, than they could make on the sales of their books alone, or than many of them used to make teaching in university creative writing programs. And I now must add my own name to that list and confess that in the last few years, not only have I made a pretty good living from the movie business, I've had a heck of a good time doing it too. And furthermore, I'm not ashamed or even slightly embarrassed by the movies that have been adapted from my novels. Well, that's not altogether true. There are a few moments in each which may come up in the question and answer period later, but there are a few moments in each that make me cringe and crouch low in my seat when I see them. But overall, I am delighted to have been associated with the making of those two films, Affliction and The Sweet Hereafter, and I'm grateful to the people who made them and to the business people who financed them. I think they are interesting, excellent films in their own terms, and I feel they honor the novels on which they are based. And I don't believe I'm alone in having had such a delightful experience. Most of the writers I listed earlier, if not all of them, feel the same about the films adapted from their works. Or Rick Moody might grumble about aspects of the ice storm, and William Kennedy might quibble with some of the decisions made in the making of Ironweed. But unlike the Faulkners, Cheevers, Perlmans, and Hecks of previous generations, none of the writers mentioned here feels demeaned exploited or deceived. The contrast between my experience and that of so many of my colleagues on the one hand and the experience of our predecessors on the other is so great as to raise an interesting question. Simply, has the movie industry in the last 10 or 15 years and especially in the last five years become uncharacteristically hospitable to serious works of fiction? Or have the sensibilities and needs of the writers of fiction been coarsened and dumbed down to such a degree that they no longer feel offended by Hollywood? <laughs> Obviously, since rightly or wrongly, I feel neither coarsened nor dumbed down, especially, I believe it's the former. It's Hollywood that's changed. And it's possible that my own experience there, since it hasn't been especially uncharacteristic, can illustrate how it has changed if not suggest why. Although Affliction was not released until December 1998 and The Sweet Hereafter was released a year earlier in December 97, both movies were shot within weeks of each other between January and March of 1997. Both were filmed in Canada, Affliction in Quebec less than two hours drive from my home in upstate New York, and The Sweet Hereafter in Toronto and British Columbia. The most salient aspect of this, other than the fact that because they were nearby I got to hang around the sets a whole lot, is merely that neither movie was filmed in Los Angeles. A far more important fact, however, is that the director of Affliction, Paul Schrader, and of The Sweet Hereafter, Adam McGoyan, although a generation apart, are both auteur-style independent filmmakers, serious cinematic artists with exciting artistic imaginations. Crucially, they are men with no studio affiliations who finance their projects by hook and crook, pasting together support from half a dozen sources, foreign and domestic, risking their mortgages, their kids' college educations, and next summer's vacation every time out, in a game that for them is high stakes and personal, but it leaves them with maximum control over what ends up on the screen. Final cut, in other words, all the way down the line. And this is only possible because of budget size. Paul Schrader likes to point out that somewhere around $14 million, you have to put white hats on the good guys and black hats on the bad guys. <laughs> it's practically an immutable law of filmmaking, he says. $14 million adjusted to inflation is the point where you're told by the person with a checkbook, no more shades of gray, no more contradictions, no more ambiguities. 
Affliction cost a little over $6 million to make. The Sweet Hereafter cost about $4.7 million. And you can be sure that Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek, James Coburn, Willem Dafoe, and Ian Holm did not receive their usual fees. These actors, all of them movie stars, commanding salaries equal in a couple of cases to the entire budget of the movie, worked for far less because they admired the director and the other cast members and wanted to work with them. They were excited by the screenplay and the source material for the film, and they wanted to portray characters who were colored in shades of gray, wanted to inhabit lives made complex and believable by contradiction and ambiguity dealing with serious conflicts that matter in the real world. They believed in film as an art form and in their craft and the abilities of their colleagues and were trying for that rare thing, a collaborative, lasting work of art. Two important factors then contributed mightily to getting these rather difficult and some might say depressing films made. The directors, both of them artists with strong personal visions of the world, were independent filmmakers free of studio affiliation, with track records that attracted great actors. And both films were budgeted low enough to keep down the debt service so that an investor could recoup his money and even make a profit without having to sell tickets to every 14-year-old boy and girl in America. Without, in other words, having to turn the movie into a theme park or a video game. Also, there may have been a third factor which underlies both of these first two, technology. The technology of filmmaking has changed considerably in recent years. From the camera to the editing room, from the soundtrack to the projection booth, filmmaking has gone digital, as they like to say, so that it's possible, for instance, as in The Sweet Hereafter, to send a school bus careening over a cliff and skidding across a frozen lake to where it stops then slowly sinks below the ice. A horrifying sight, all composed in a few days in a dark room in Toronto, pixels on a computer screen, a virtual school bus, cliff, and frozen lake. For one-tenth the price and made in one quarter of the time it would have taken to stage and film in 35 millimeter an actual bus, cliff, and lake. The enormous and incredibly expensive technological resources and hardware available to a studio will soon be available to almost any kid with a credit card or an indulgent uncle. And that kid can set up shop with a laptop anywhere from Soho to Montreal to Toronto to Seattle and compete with the Lucases, Disney's and Henson's of the world. American independent filmmaking seems to be entering a truly brave new world and it will create a transition comparable, perhaps, I think this, to the transition between silent films and talkies. One in which, thanks to technological change, the old controlling economic structures undergo deep seismic shifts and rearrangements, with the result that the prevailing aesthetic and thematic conditions will have to give way. The boom in recent years of independent movie making is just the beginning, the trend toward multinational corporate bloat and gigantism will no doubt continue, if for no other reason than thanks to that same technological change put to other uses, it can. Unifying theme parks, professional sports, retailing and gambling under one all-season stadium roof, so that the distinction between shopping and entertainment eventually disappears altogether, and Las Vegas and Orlando become our national cultural capitals the 21st century model cities of America. But at the same time, thanks to the very same technology, the equivalent of a cinematic samizdat is beginning to evolve right alongside it. And this is where the real filmmaking is being done. The rest is little more than consumer advertising, tie-ins, and product placement. And this is where we'll see the bright young directors, screenwriters, cinematographers, and actors going to work. The Adam Agoyans and the Paul Schraders of the future will be making their films rapidly and cheaply, editing them as fast as they're shot, and releasing them as independently as they're made by the internet or on video and DVD. Films just this year like The Blair Witch Project and Being John Malkovich and last year's The Celebration and the just released Last Night, inventive, unconventionally structured, 
freshly and bravely imagined movies are not anomalies in today's film world, although five years ago they would have been. Five years ago they probably would not have been made at all. But nor, for that matter, would Affliction and The Sweet Hereafter. This is why I think you're seeing so many serious novelists hanging around the filmmakers this, these days. They sense that there's something marvelous happening here. And if it doesn't take too much time away from their fiction writing and pays reasonably well, they'd like to be a part of it. Just consider the writing itself, the screenwriting. Until recently, the conventions of screenwriting were, from a late 20th century novelist's perspective, moribund, stuck in linear time, glued to the old Aristotelian unities of place, time, and character, a three-act tale as anachronistic and predictable as well as a late 19th century novel. What self-respecting postmodernist fiction writer would want to work in a form so limited and so inappropriate to the times? Yet for the writers of screenplays, until recently it was as if five generations after Faulkner, Joyce, and Wolfe, modernism never existed. Or if it did, then it had no relevance to narrative except between the covers of a book. No wonder Ben Hecht felt he had to take his brain off when he went to work in Hollywood. No wonder Hemingway couldn't be bothered even to cross the state line. And no wonder there was such a fuss a few years ago when Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction pushed the envelope just a little and played with narrative time and point of view. At the moment, it was a radical move for a screenwriter, perhaps. But all he was doing was employing a few of the tools that practically every second-year fiction writing student keeps at the ready, switchback and replay, and a Rashomon split on point of view. Consider again our two examples, The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, and not just how those screenplays were written, but the, to me, amazing fact that the novels get adapted for film at all. Never mind the subject matter, although it is amusing to imagine having to pitch the stories to an old-time studio executive Mr. Warner, I've got this very dark story that starts with a school bus accident in a small north country town, and a large number of the children of the town are killed, and the movie's about the reaction of the village to this mind-numbing event. You don't like that one, huh? Okay, how about this one? An alcoholic, violent, 45-year-old small-town cop tries and fails to overcome the psychological and moral disfigurement inflicted on him as a child by his alcohol and violent father. Well, let's just talk about the narrative form and structure of the two novels. The Sweet Hereafter is told from four separate linked points of view, four different characters, each of whom picks up the story where the previous narrator left off and continues for 75 or so pages before handing it off, in the process remembering and recounting his and her past, offering reflections and ruminations, observations and grief for the lost children. Affliction is told from the point of view of an apparently minor character who is gradually, indirectly, revealed to be an unreliable narrator, and thus, by the tale's end, has become the central figure in the story, displacing the person we thought the story was about. Neither form lends itself to a conventional three-act screenplay with the usual plot points and fixed unities of time, place, and point of view. And if, for no other reason than that, never mind subject matter, I was amazed that anyone even wanted to try to make a movie from them. Happily, both Adam McGoyan and Paul Schrader did, and they both felt free to invite me into the process of adaptation from the start and allowed me to look over their shoulders, as it were, all the way through to the editing room and beyond. It was a fascinating and very instructive and very instructive to see the liberties they took. Not with the books, not at all, but with the old conventions of filmmaking, from screenplay to casting to camera placement to editing and sound. For instance, Egoyan, to preserve the multiple points of view of the suite hereafter, which in the novel one can think of perhaps as being structured vertically, like four columns of type, or four members of a mile relay team, which in the real-time constraints of a movie, as opposed to the more interactive mental time, freedoms of fiction, would have given him four separate consecutive 30-minute movies. 
Instead, he essentially tipped the story onto its side, ran the several points of view horizontally, as it were, almost simultaneously, the relay runners running four abreast instead of sequentially, so that the story moves back and forth in time and from place to place with unapologetic ease. Egoyan trusts his viewer to reconstruct time and place and reunify point of view on his or her own, just as one does when reading a modern novel. It's no big deal. Similarly, Schrader, with affliction, felt no compunction against letting the narrator of the novel, a minor character, it seems, one outside the action, merely the witness and recapitulator of his older brother's deeds and misdeeds, the character who would surely have been eliminated at once from a studio production of this film. Schrader makes him slowly, subtly the center of the story, using voiceover to establish his presence at every crucial juncture and giving us explicit, dramatized inconsistencies, conflicting versions of events to establish his unreliability so that Willem Dafoe's voiceover at the end, Only I Remain, can be heard and felt with a terrible chill of recognition by all of us in the audience. We who, unlike poor Wade Whitehouse, the ostensible and long-gone hero of our story, we who also remain. And in that way, the story of affliction becomes our story. Wade's affliction becomes our culture's affliction. Working as closely as I did with the Goyen and Schrader, I really received a crash course in filmmaking. And what I learned can't be done in film was just as interesting and instructive to me, the fiction writer, as what I learned can be done in film was interesting and instructive to me, the neophyte screenwriter. A particularly useful and typical insight, for instance, came to me early on in the writing of the, of the Sweet Hereafter screenplay. Egoyan had told me that one of the aspects of the novel that most excited him was the final scene, a demolition derby, which I assume most of you are familiar with. We even went to one, he and I, um, in upstate New York and, um, and photographed it at great length. He said it was the most cinematic scene in the book. He loved it. He could hardly wait to get it on the screen. But when it came time to write it into the screenplay, he just couldn't. It was too big, too loud, too noisy, too crowded. What could he do? So he asked me, he said, what's the underlying function of the scene in the novel? Why is it there? And I explained, or tried to explain that it that I thought it served, I had hoped that it would serve as a social rite, a familiar but nonetheless strange, rigidly structured ritual that was capable of embracing and embellishing and reconfiguring the roles of the various members of the community. With the devices and artifices of fiction available to me, I could, I could keep that noise down. I could thin out the crowd and slow down the speed, distancing the demolition derby, so that it could function in the novel as an emblem for everything else in the story. He got this. Also, all along, I told him that to me the novel only seemed realistic. Actually, it was supposed to be read as a moral fable, or experienced, I should say, as a moral fable, as an elaboration on a medieval fairy tale, perhaps, about the loss of the children in our culture from the adult's point of view. And that's when he called me up one night and proposed cutting into the film The Pied Piper of Hamelin, a literal reading of the literal book. At first I said, bad idea, Adam, too literary. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, no, it's too literary for a novel, but not for a film. Just as the demolition derby was too cinematic for a film, maybe, but not for a novel. Film, I was discovering, is in your face. Fiction is in your head. A further example, something I learned a full year after The Sweet Hereafter was made and, and released. Um, in Toronto one night, Egoyan and I gave a presentation to benefit a small theater group there and decided that what we would do is I would read a scene from the novel and um, he would show a clip of the film version of the same scene on the screen behind us and then we would discuss back and forth why each of us 
had done what we had done, as far as we, each of us, knew what we had done. Now, one of these scenes was one that turned out to have be very controversial in many ways in the film, but not at all, at least that I could discern in, amongst readers of the book. And that was the incest scene, which a number of people who had, and some who even hadn't, read the book complained about in the film. In the novel, the narrator, a 14-year-old girl, describes her being abused sexually by her father as over and over again like a dream. And she says, I thought maybe I'd imagined it, and so on. She's a 14-year-old girl telling us this again and again as she describes what actually happened. But it, by, by presenting it in that manner, she distances us from the actual act, the incest, by placing her account of her response to it between it and us, so that we simultaneously imagine it in a diluted form, a dimmed form, and her in two different time frames, during and after. Egoyen tried to find a cinematic way to show that. From Nicole's point, Nicole's point of view, it was like a dream. It was something she'd maybe imagined and so forth. But as a result, he presents it as if it were a dream, i.e. dreamy, with candles, music, a father who almost seems to be her boyfriend, which has the effect not of distancing the incest and allowing us to pity the victim and fear for her in the appropriate way, but of romanticizing it, making the victim seem way too complicit and fear and pity nearly impossible. These lessons don't suggest to me that fiction is in any way superior to film, merely different in fascinating and challenging ways. Furthermore, the freedom to make movies this way, to be inventive, imaginative, and complex in the formal and structural aspects of the screenplay, and to deal with life and death issues that affect us all in our day-to-day -day lives, this is what attracts novelists like Paul Auster, Peter Carey, John Irving, and so many others like them to the film business. It's not as in the past, merely the business of the movie business that attracts it's the movies that can be made there. It's certainly what has attracted me. And as a direct result of my experience with The, with the Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, in the last few years I've become a screenwriter myself, adapting two of my novels, uh, Rule of the Bone for Chris Noonan to direct and Continental Drift for Anthony Drazen to direct. And I'm now at work on another novel adaptation by a different novelist. And I'm planning soon to write an original screenplay, too. I'm there. I'm a dues-paying member of the Screenwriters Guild of America. <laughs> I've even become a producer of film versions of three of my novels, if you can ever figure out what a producer is. But the people I'm working with, the directors, actors, fellow producers, even the agents, are smart, are exceedingly skilled at what they do. They know all kinds of things that I don't. And in no way do they make me feel that to work with them, I've got to put on a sports jacket and take off my brain. Quite the opposite. Eudora Welty said, the novel is something that never was before and will not be again. And that is why we write them. When it begins to appear that a film can also be that new, that uniquely itself, then, believe me, men and women who otherwise would be writing novels will want to make films, too. We are fast approaching that point. Sure, it really is a lot of fun to hobnob with movie stars and go to Cannes and Sundance and ride to the Oscars in a limo, the likes of which you haven't seen since your senior prom, but the thrill fades faster than cheap cologne. The thrill of becoming intricately and intimately involved in the process of making a true work of narrative art, however, and the chance to make that work of art collaboratively in the most powerful medium known to man, that's as thrilling as it gets, at least for this old storyteller, it is. And too, as Peter DeVries once said, I love being a writer. What I can't stand is the paperwork.
But, but I, I don't want to leave you with the mistaken impression that I or any um, of the other novelists that I've mentioned here, my blessed colleagues, is likely to give up writing fiction to devote him or herself to film, despite the paperwork. That's inconceivable to me. These dalliances with film, however thrilling, financially rewarding, and instructive they are, they can't replace the deep, life-shaping, life-changing response one gets from creating a fictional world, from living in that world for years at a time, and then sending it out to strangers, perfect strangers. A novel like a marriage can change your life for the rest of your life. I'm not so sure that can be said of a movie any more than it can be of a love affair. What then do I say to that very kind stranger who tells me, no, but I saw the movie? I can answer, ah, but that was in another country, friend, and in a different time. If you read the book, you will now and then be reminded of that country, perhaps, in that time, but only dimly and incidentally. For when we open a novel, we bring to it everything that we bring to, our, to a film, our memories and fears and our longings and dreams, our secrets, even the ones we keep from ourselves, all of which the film either displaces or simply disregards as it unspools in the dark before us, all of which our memories, fears, longings and dreams, the novel engages and utilizes wholly as it takes us out of our lives into another that's as much of our own making as it is of the novelists. That intimacy, that secret sharing among strangers is what no novelist and no reader can give up. No matter how remarkable it is, a film is what it is, regardless of our presence or absence before it. The darkened theater can be empty and it won't affect the essential nature of the film being shown there. But a novel simply does not exist until it's read, and each time it's read, even if it's read a second time by the same person or a third, even if it's read a thousand years after it was written, it is just as Eudora Welty said, it's something that never was before and will not be again. Thank you. Okay. okay. Yeah. Hey. Uh, these are both pretty good, actually. What is the significance of the buses in so many of your books, as in the, the school buses, I guess, uh, in The Sweet Hereafter, Rule of the Bone, and Affliction? I hadn't realized, actually, that um, school buses were, um, were my thing uh, <laughs> uh, until I uh, finished The Sweet Hereafter. And... Um, and people started sending me from all over the country little toy school buses um, in the mail. I started getting some old, some new, big ones, little ones. And, and then um, people started sending me. I have one from Honduras, a couple from Japan, um, one from um, Tanzania. And they were ubiquitous school buses, I began to realize. They're everywhere. They're a big part of our imagination. And we barely know it, or I barely knew it, at least, until it was there on the page. I guess what uh, what they were for me um, in the books is um, a link between parents and children that is so easily broken. Are they they, they emblem? They're an emblem for that uh, of uh, an image which which brings us to that um, awareness, an awareness that perhaps most of us don't like to think about. I certainly, as a parent, never really like to think about it. Um, and school buses, for instance, when you put your child in a school bus, it's the first time you. You sort of entrust your child to the state. Um, and this is the link that takes the child away from the protection of the home. So it is a, a, a complex and, and um, many-layered image, I think. So I think that's why it showed up in Affliction, which is very much a story about parents and children, uh, parents trying to, and failing to be good parents, children trying um, to be loved and, and protected and, and taught by their parents and trying then to live with the inadequacy and failure of their parents. Um, 
And then when it became more conscious for me as a theme in the sweet hereafter, I really understood then what I was doing. And then in affliction, uh, I mean, in, in, in Rule of the Bone, it became a, an important link between the two books because I thought of those two books as bookends in a way. They're both about the same phenomenon, I think, or, which is, uh, as I alluded to it earlier, the loss of our children in the culture and the sweet hereafter being a kind of a moral fable about that, that uh, sort of anthropologically deep event um, from the point of view of the parents and the, uh, in our communities and the um, in our larger community and rule of the bone being about the lost children from the point of view of the lost child so school buses are for me a very resonant image and um, I now have collected I think almost every kind of school bus toy school bus uh, made over the last 50 years let's see this says uh, I found rule of the bone compelling and affecting would you mind imagining for us the boy 10 years later in life that's an interesting question to me because so many of these characters that one lives with for a few years of one's own life, maybe in this case, I lived with Bone for two years, but one year of Bone's life between 14 and 15, you do become involved with them. It's like having, you know, this is my fresh air kid. He was with me for the whole couple of years. Uh, and uh, I was like my foster child. And, um, and I look for him in all the malls of America whenever I go there. Um, and... Yeah, I imagine him the way I imagine um, a lost member of my family. That's really it. I mean, I, I can't be any more um, specific than that uh, or helpful to somebody else trying to imagine him. When I was uh, 29, 28 I was, 1968, my, younger brother, my youngest brother was killed in an accident. He was at 17. And his body was never found. He disappeared essentially, and the nature of the accident was such that the body was never found. And there was always the possibility, and it remains to this very day, the possibility that he ran away. It was 1968, a lot of kids did run away in the 60s. And I have spent the intervening years, um, 30-some years since then, imagining um, him at the different ages along the way. He's 11 years younger than, he was 11 years younger than I. I think I feel that way sort of toward Bone and a few other characters that I uh, got affectionately close to, uh, especially close to, is that uh, I imagine them that way as a lost member of my family who may be out there somewhere in, uh, in a strange city working in a, um, uh, a pizza parlor or something like that, um, looking very much the same but different. Um, and I know I would recognize them instantly. This is, I don't know, some of these questions I can't answer because they're so smart and um, complicated. This is none I, I can answer, though. This is pretty smart, too, and complicated, but maybe not as, not as intimidating. <laughs> so whoever wrote this, don't worry, I'm not putting it down for it. It's <laughs> it says, please talk about teaching writing. Does it drain you or um, rev you up or something you up? Um, and how? Um, I loved teaching writing, and I taught it uh, under the most wonderful circumstances for many years at Princeton. I taught under other places as well, but that was where, the, uh, since 1982, I taught, and um, and where I finally, you know, resigned from reluctantly because I was teaching only one semester a year, and it wasn't onerous. Um, and I do miss the classroom. Um, I, it was, it was a, that was the, where the pleasure. Um, resided for me was in the classroom with the 18 to 22 year old undergraduates. I never was happy teaching graduate writing students, but I always have been happy teaching undergraduates because even though you know one out of a thousand maybe end up being a writer 10 or 12 years from now, um, they're all going to be readers. And um, it's like teaching piano to people who will never necessarily become concert pianists, but, um, but who love the piano. And by learning how difficult it is to play really well, become much better listeners of music or dance. The same thing with teaching writing to undergraduates. They might never become writers, but by trying and failing to write a good short story, by reading other short stories from the point of view of a writer, taking them apart and reassembling them, they become much better readers. And um, 
that was what I felt I was doing when I was teaching writing at Princeton all those years. And also I knew that many of these young students would, in 10 years, if they weren't writers, be journalists or book reviewers, maybe even reviewing my books, <laughs> and uh, or critics and so on, or publishers and editors, as indeed has been the case. Um, and so I knew that they would be better for that, having tried. I had an editor for many years at HarperCollins, Ted Solitorov, who was a wonderful editor. And then he retired some years ago and sat down to write his own novel. And um, years passed, the novel never came, and I knew he was struggling with it. And I finally, um, he, he finally did finish it, and by the time he finished it, it had turned into a memoir. It was no longer a novel. And I met him for dinner one night, and he said the kindest thing to me, um, for an editor perhaps to say to a writer, especially one of his own, um, he said, you know, Russ, if I had written this book in my 20s, I would have been a much, much better editor. And I think that that's true. I mean, what he said was so true and, and useful for him, a little bit late, but, uh, but I think that's true for young people who are in creative writing classes who may never become writers. And those of us who teach, I think, take it from that point of view. On the other hand, I really enjoy not being associated with the university or the academic life in any way anymore because it takes me back to where I was before I went to college. I went to college in my middle 20s, not in the usual order, after I'd already decided that I was a writer and I was writing and I was looking at the world from the point of view of a writer. And I was interested in everything for its, its use, what use I could make of it in my work, in my writing. And, I'm, and I had no interest in or curiosity about the canon or other academic questions, questions of great moment to, to scholars and critics and, and, and academics generally. Um, I was really interested in um, why my neighbor was watching television at five in the morning. You know, that's the kind of thing that a fiction writer gets into. Well, thank you all so very much for a very nice evening. That was Russell Banks from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1999. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Our show is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>